What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared episode with me, Farah Jassat. The episode today is really special. We teamed up with an organisation called Galdem, which is a British media organisation that platforms and spotlights the creative work of women of colour and non-binary people of colour to put on an amazing event this week called Trailblazers, Women Leading the Way. This was a conversation with successful women of colour from all fields, including Diane Abbott, the Shadow Home Secretary and Labour MP for Hackney North and Stoke Newington, and the newly minted Booker Prize winner Bernadine Evaristo, who earlier this week won the Booker Prize alongside Margaret Atwood. We also have Michelle Hussein, presenter of BBC Radio 4's Today programme, Yomi Adegoke, the award-winning journalist behind Slain Your Lane, the Black Girl's Bible, Corinne Bailey-Ray, an award-winning singer-songwriter and musician. And the chair was Ash Saka, writer-journalist and broadcaster who famously called Piers Morgan an idiot and told him she was literally a communist. The discussion they had was all about how young women of colour can succeed, trailblaze in their fields, what challenges they're faced, how they dealt with failure and what advice they'd give to the next generation. We really hope you enjoy it and please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. Not that you needed much persuasion because we have an absolutely stellar panel for you. By way of introduction, I want to talk a little bit about the opportunity that we have tonight. Because, yes, we live in times of great risk, but it is also one of great opportunity. There is an opening up of cultural space, political space for women of colour in a way that feels unprecedented And so to be celebrating these incredible women up on the stage with me feels like an honour. I do a lot of these sort of panel discussions, and usually I'm a very lonely dab of melanin (laughs) in an otherwise very homogenous setting. And so to chair this panel, which is stuffed to the rafters of women of colour who have not just shattered but stomped on the glass ceiling. It's a privilege. It's something which I've never thought in my life I would ever be a part of. And more than anything, I'm really excited to read The Spectator tomorrow when we're being denounced as part of a war on white men. (laughs) And so that's the part which feels terribly exciting and the bit which feels sometimes terribly precarious is when you stop and take a look at the world around you 
It seems that the price that you've got to pay for putting your head above the parapet gets steeper by the day. So in England and Wales, reported hate crimes have doubled in the past six years. Two-thirds of them are related to race. And across the pond, the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of Ilhan Omar, of Ayanna Presley was a huge step forward for progressive radical women of colour. At the same time, it was met by intense hostility by none other than Donald Trump, who has called them obnoxious, crazy communists, as though any of that's a bad thing. Um, and, and the threats that they have received tend to spike in uh, concert with uh, you know, Donald Trump lo- logging into Twitter. So... The women on tonight's panel who are trailblazers in the arts, in politics, in journalism, in music, not only do they know something about taking risks both in their work and you know, with their own safety at times, but hopefully have got something to share with us about the way in which I think we can create spaces of shared joy, of shared opportunity I don't want us to talk about trailblazers just in terms of individual attainment, but the opportunity to lift up the voices of other people too. I think we can all agree that it's not about pulling up the ladder after you once you make it. So, to introduce our speakers, first on my left, I think actually on a lot of people's left, Um, t- tonight, on my left, we have Diane Abbott, Shadow Home Secretary and the first black woman to ever sit as a member of Parliament. Yeah. Do you, do you want to know my favourite fact about Diane? This is my favourite fact. Is... In 2017, her majority in this constituency was bigger than every single sum total vote that Nigel Farage has managed to get in a general election in his entire career. (laughs) Which is, yeah, my favourite fact. He's a specialist in failure, but enough about that. We have got down here, we have Yomi Adagoke, an award-winning journalist, co-author of Slay in Your Lane, the Black Girl Bible, which is a visionary guide to navigating life as a black woman in Britain today. The book includes interviews with trailblazing black women, including Mallory Blackman, Clara Ampho, Afwa Hirsch, and Denise Lewis. It's a terrific book. If you haven't read it, you should definitely get your hands on it. We have also got, on my far left, Bernadine Evaristo, who last night made history by becoming the first black woman to win the Booker Prize with her novel Girl, Woman, Other. You've also done incredible work for diversity in the arts, particularly in the field of theatre. And I know that you've done some work holding publishers to account in terms of who they publish and, more importantly, who they don't publish. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit more as the panel goes on. We have got to the far right, only in seating terms, not in political terms. (laughs) We have got Corrine Bailey-Ray, an award-winning singer, songwriter. You are... I think a multiple Grammy award-winning artist, a Brit and BET nominee. You did that song, which was in my head for, I think, about three and a half years. (laughs) 
Go put your records on. You've collaborated with the likes of John Legend and Tyler, the creator. So please, a very warm welcome to Corinne. And last but certainly not least, we have got Michelle Hussein right here on my right. And she's a presenter on BBC Radio 4's flagship political programme, The Today Programme, for which you've got to get up at 3am tomorrow morning. Tomorrow, yes, unfortunately. Which is why you have to leave us a little bit early before the Q&A. But hopefully you'll be able to stay for most of the conversation portion. You've had 20 years in journalism. Yes. Um, when you get to the 20-year mark, of course you start to feel older than you really like to remember. But yeah, I've had a, I've had a great career in journalism. <laughs> and I hope to anyone who, you know, here who wants to go into that field, I, I hope what I say tonight leaves you more encouraged rather than thinking I don't want to go down that route at all. <laughs> but it's just not everyone has to get up at three in the morning. But... To kick things off, I thought let's do a little quick fire round so everyone gets two minutes each. I think maybe we should go from left over to the right. And I would like everyone to answer the same question. Do you remember the moment that provoked you to go down this particular path where many who looked like you had not tread before? Yes. Um, so, hi, everybody. Thank you for this, all the applause and everything. Um, I wouldn't say it was a moment. I would say it was, there was a sort of natural progression. Um, but I've had two careers. My first career was theatre. Um, and myself and Patricia St. Hilaire and Paulette Randall, who's a theatre director, formed Theatre of Black Women, which was uh, Britain's first black women's theatre company in 1982. And it lasted until 1988. And that was uh, a company that we formed because there was, when we left drama school, no work for us or certainly no kind of parts that we wanted to play because anything on offer was very stereotyped. So almost like the day we left drama school, we then formed the theatre company and ran the theatre company. And a play, one of the plays we put on was Chiara Skuru by Jackie Kay in 1986, which has interestingly just been resurrected by the Bush Theatre, run by Lynette, uh, Lynette Linton, some of you might know, who is like a 27-year-old black woman running one of our best sort of small theatres, the Bush Theatre. Um, so that was my first career. But the second career was as a writer, which is as a writer, which has lasted much longer. And what, what happened was I was writing for theatre and acting in plays, and then I left the performance behind, but I was writing poetry, and then slowly decided that what I wanted to do was to become a writer. And I published my first book of poetry in 1994. And then I remember there was a point at which I had to make a decision about whether I was going to go for it as a writer. And, of course, going for it as a writer, you know, of fiction or poetry means generally that nobody's waiting for you to produce any work. You know, you have to find a way to support yourself while you develop your creative talent. And I was working on a book called Lara about my family history, a, a verse novel. And I remember I had to make a decision. Was I going to go into some kind of job full-time, having left theatre behind and um, working part-time in arts management. You know, was I going to try and become, for example, maybe a BBC producer or just do something that would give me a solid income and, you know, a salary, I'd get a mortgage, I'd have a pension and all those things that most people want? Or was I, was I going to take the risky route and see if I could earn my living as a writer but do that through uh, earning very little money um, and working maybe one or two days a week. And I chose, I chose the latter option. 
and that was the best decision I made. So basically, I sacrificed earning money, owning property, um, you know, thinking about my financial security for investing in my creativity. And that's what I did until I got, I am a professor of creative writing at Brunel University London, but I only got that job in 2011. So before then, I had what you call a portfolio career where I was doing all kinds of things to support myself while doing my writing. Um, and once I got the professorship, I then got the salary and the mortgage and everything else, but very late in life. So I say that was, I would say that was the decision I made, you know, and that was in, you know, in the sort of early mid nineties that I would take the road less traveled and see if I could have a career as a writer. And at that time in the UK, there were not many black British writers getting published. Butchia Machetta is, you know, really the sort of mother of, of black British writing, but, um, we hadn't broken through in the way that we, we did by the end of the 90s and certainly in the noughties. So I wasn't the only one. I wasn't a trailblazer as a writer, but there were very few of us out there doing, doing, doing it. I mean, Diane, you could have done anything and now you've chosen a job where you've got to look at Jacob Rees-Mogg every day. <laughs> Why? <laughs> That's, that's a good question. I have to say that I've never seen myself as going into politics. For me, politics is a vocation. I know some people might mock that. For me, it's always been a vocation. But what I, wanted, what I knew I wanted to do quite young was make a change. And the thing I always used to say is that when I turned 40, and I'm a few years past 40 now, <laughs> but when I turned 40, I wanted to look in the mirror and say to myself that I had tried. And I did try. That's what it's about for me, making a change. And if I have to think of a moment, my family from Jamaica, they left school at 14. I went to Cambridge University, which I had no idea what it, was, what it was about, actually. I just read novels where people went to Cambridge. I had no idea. I had no idea I wasn't even supposed to be there as a working-class black girl. So it's my first day, and we go to see our hall tutor in those Cambridge colleges, sure in halls, different halls. And all of us that were doing history, there were about half a dozen of us doing history. So there was the tutor sitting on a chair like this, I think she was called Kathleen Hughes. They're all us girls sitting around her. And I looked around at all those posh white girls and I thought, what the fuck have you done, Diane? (laughs) And that's probably the theme of my life. What have you done now? yourself how did you end up in that little recording booth at radio 4 yes in the early hours of the morning so my parents came to this country from pakistan and my father was a doctor and basically they you know that like many asian families they really wanted me to be a doctor and i managed to dodge that but then but then and this may also strike a chord with some of you you know i had to go to university to do something i would have loved to go to university to do english but i kind of had to do something vocational so i thought the least of the sort of evils was law so i i started my law degree and halfway through um i thought i just don't think i can actually do this you know for the rest of my life so i started thinking about what else i might do and because i'd grown up in the middle east and you know often families who are from diaspora communities you tend to be 
big news consumers, you tend to um, keep, you know, that tends to be a big part of your life. And so I thought, well, maybe I could do something in journalism. And um, so I joined the BBC and I thought I, you know, I, I didn't see myself as being in front of the camera or the microphone. That really was a lucky break where an editor took a chance on me. Um, but I worked a lot in international news and a bit on BBC One, and everything was ticking along, you know, fine. Uh, and then about six and a half years ago, the new editor of the Today programme said to me, you know, we're going to recruit a new presenter. Are you interested? And I came home and said to my husband, you know, I got asked this question today, but I'm going to say no because I think it will be too hard. And, um, and to his credit, he said to me, you know, if one of our children said that, you would never take that as an answer. And I thought about it. And of course, I was thinking about the early starts. I had three quite young children at that time. And I thought, I just don't want to put myself through the scrutiny. It's a bit of a bear pit. You know, your interview's going to get talked about and torn to shreds all the time. And I'd really rather not work those hours. But I did throw my hat into the ring. And the thing is, I look back now and I just think, this is the toughest, but also the most rewarding experience of my professional life. And I nearly self-selected my way completely out of that. And so I guess my lesson is not, you must throw yourself into every hard thing that's thrown at you, because some may not be the right thing for you at that particular time. But the lesson I took away is that I would never have learned what I've learned in the last six years um, if I hadn't had that conversation with my husband, which really pushed me. I also don't know who in the audience needed to hear that relationships should be supportive and make you feel good about yourself, but that's also very good advice. <laughs> you know, I got to the age of 25 without knowing that, so... Um, yeah, so first of all, I'm just absolutely shook to be on this panel. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there because I cannot believe... Normally, I'm in the audience at things like this, literally fangirling, taking my notes, and... I, with Not every question, anymore, <laughs> no, I can't believe it. With every question that Ash asks, I'm kind of like, yeah, what is the answer, guys? Like taking my <laughs> notes. I wish I had my little journal with me, um, but yeah, I'm just bamboozled by everybody. Um, so, in terms of, I suppose, the moment, um, I think, like Michelle, um, when you sort of mentioned law and um, having parents that felt that it was very important, you studied that or something along those lines. I started having sort of war flashbacks to my time <laughs> at Warwick University um, where, you know, I mean, funny enough, my parents actually wanted me to be an architect um, because I can draw and they sort of were like, yeah, if you can do that into something, if you can turn that into something that actually makes you money, <laughs> like immediately and isn't, you strip all the kind of like, you know, illustrative bits of it and just make houses and that'd be great. Um, but they were settled with law and um, essentially... <laughs> Um, my kind of, I suppose, like awakening happened um, at Warwick University, again, surrounded by posh white girls and white guys. And, um, you know, coming from Croydon, from a working class Nigerian background, um, it was quite the culture shock. Um, and um, I decided that after years of sort of studying, you know, Latin and <laughs> various parts of law that I wasn't particularly good at, that I take a sort of external module, which was called Race, Difference and Society. And in that module, I never forget the first lecture. They, you know, had all these different statistics about race and about how certain groups were disenfranchised. And one of the statistics that I will never, ever forget is that they said that black people in Britain were more likely to be given 
really strong sort of medication if they went to the doctor and said that they were suffering from mental illness. So rather than sort of being given talking therapies or any other kind of therapy, they were given very serious, strong medication and essentially immediately demonised. And I sort of walked out of that lesson and sort of said, like, where's the outrage? Where's the conversation about this? And then I realised it was happening, but in really, really sort of small, you know, pockets of the media and essentially outside of the media. And um, I'm quite a big moaner. I'm somebody that likes to complain quite a lot. So I thought if I could possibly complain about these things and be paid to do it and get lots of people to hear it, that would probably be something that, you know, yeah, I could make a career out of. So I dropped out of university. That was more because I think that's why the statistics sort of hit me so much because I was going through depression and took a year out of university, started up a angry blog. And it was funnily enough, a middle class white man that said, you know, you can get paid for this. It's called journalism. And I was like, whoa, he's on to something. So yeah, that's literally what happened. I started off as a blogger and I'm very fortunate to have been able to sort of turn it into a real journalistic career. But I think if I hadn't heard those horrific statistics during my time at university and I think seen racism as more than no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, as more than people calling you the N-word in the street and seeing how it systemically and institutionally affected people, people like me that were going through mental health issues, I don't think I would be here today. I don't think I, or at least certainly not in this stage, that's for sure. (laughs) I mean, I think that something that you said might resonate with Corinne in the sense of the moment where you realise that your work, your intellectual labour, your creative labour is worth money. Because I imagine that as a musician, you're almost expected to just almost like secrete it from your pores and not say that you're worth being paid for your time and for your efforts. When was the moment that you realised that music wasn't just something that you put out into the world, it was something which could support you and a living from? Um, I think it was after I finished university, you know, I started a band, I was in this uh, riot girl band called Helen, and I played electric <laughs> guitar and sang, we, we played in uh, lots of very dirty pubs when I was like 15 and 16, and I went to university because I loved English literature and I wanted to sort of, I wanted to pursue that and I wanted to learn, I wanted to learn from other writers. Bernadine actually came to our university and spoke on Lara while I was a student at Leeds University. Yeah, she came there and I thought, you know, that was amazing to see. Here's a black woman who's a writer who's getting paid for their work. You know, you're probably the first person I had met that was in that position. So it's interesting that you were saying it was just a few years before then that, that you had got in that world. And I guess I felt the same that I, I loved music, but um, I didn't know if it could be a job. And when I left university, I was at the same crossroads where I thought, I want to do music, I don't know in what form, I've got this degree, and I knew that I could do a sort of proper job, or I could waitress at the place where I'd been working throughout my university career. And I remember the first time that I was serving a group of uh, women at the table, and as as they were coming through the door, I realised these were all my teachers from school who were on some kind of Christmas do. And it, I felt this sort of embarrassment and shame because I had done really well at school and, you know, got these good A-levels and been to university. And I felt like they were thinking, you know, what a waste that I had sort of squandered this opportunity of, you know, having this education. But I felt like I was investing in myself 
as an artist. So I would work, I'd waitress in the day, and I would go and work in the evening at this jazz and soul nightclub. But I'd also be writing my songs and also be playing and also be sending off my tapes in those days. <laughs> tapes to, uh, you know, all the different record companies. And eventually I got my one break, which was a publishing deal. So I was signed as a writer, um, not to write songs for other people, but to write my own songs. And that was felt like a really big investment in myself. I think it was, I don't know, it was like £11,000. But I was like, that is so much money. I can live off that all year. I don't have to work anymore. And I just spent all my time sort of going up and down to London. I'm, I live in Leeds. I'm going to London and working with all these various writers, um, writing songs. And those songs became the songs for my first record. So when I had them all together and I had them recorded, I was able to go to record companies and say, you know, this is my work that I wrote, that I, help, I helped produce. Do you like it or not? So it put me in a really strong position, but... That was a crossroads for me into in sort of making this leap into the dark and um, believing, I guess, believing my own ability to to make work and to um, and to see if anyone else liked it. And I think that's the hard thing about being in arts and entertainment is it's so much dependent on other people's response to you. But I definitely wanted to give it a try, as Diane was saying. I wanted to try it, and um, so that was probably the moment where I realised that this wasn't just something I wanted to do for fun, but I, I just had to do it. It was it's consuming all my thought energy. The thing you said about waitressing really resonated with me because I finished uni, I did my master's, didn't really know what I was going to do, and so I just kept on working in the same pub that I'd been working at. And it was a pub which was right opposite... Uh, the Channel 4 and the ITN studios. So I was just serving pints to journalists all the time. And I was a really grumpy barmaid. I was a really terrible barmaid. Because I was just like, Ugh, I, hate, I hate this. I hate you. Um, and one night, Yanis Varoufakis, when he was Greek finance minister, walked into the pub and I completely lost my shit because I was like, oh my God, you've done so much for the Greek people. It's amazing. Um, and as I was like handing over his Peroni, like I was like shaking and slopping Peroni over the side. And I think he was a bit like, okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> strange English barmaid. And it was a couple of weeks ago that I got a sit down interview with him. And it went on for an hour for our media organization. And I felt this need to say to him, you know, this isn't the first time that we've met. You know, I served you a Peroni. And he was like, oh, yes, I, I remember. I was in London to speak to George Osborne. I'm sure that your pub was much nicer. Which is quite charitable, I thought. Um, one of the things that often marks conversations like these is that you almost replay the greatest hits. So when you felt strong, when you felt powerful. And one of the things that you don't really get room to discuss is vulnerability and making mistakes and learning through error. One of the things that I always think is that nature, in order to evolve whole species, only uses one tool, and that's the tool of the mistake. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you, Yomi, is that in your book, you encountered so many experiences of failure and failure and its relationship to success. So 
I would like to ask you, what role has failure played maybe in shaping not just your journey, but your sense of how the world works? Um, yeah, it's been so integral. I mean, in being completely transparent, I did a panel literally just, I think, maybe two, three weeks ago and just completely went blank. And I thought, for fuck's sake, I'm 28 years old. <laughs> I've been doing this for years. Like, I've been doing this since I was 20. It's approaching a decade. And I just blanked and just started saying absolute nonsense and literally had to just look at myself in the mirror and be like, I don't know if you guys have seen that meme of the guy sort of pointing at himself like, oh. <laughs> I really am the token millennial. Like, I'm literally like, you've seen that meme, Ash. But yeah. Um, <laughs> and you too, Corinne. But yeah, oh God. But um, yeah, I, see, I'm, I feel like this is probably just, I'll be telling the anecdote of this, <laughs> this story that I just did now at another panel when I'm asked about failure again. But um, yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, honestly, I do feel that. It, I feel like, especially being quite young and still feeling like I'm quite early in my journey, it's still so um central and still so close I still feel like I don't talk about it very much in hindsight I feel very much that it's something that I experience and I'm sure everybody does but um I still feel like you know so many things that I'm doing um I'm an author but you know I wrote and co-wrote essentially my first book um a year ago um even that process which I suppose from the outside looked massively seamless sometimes to just sort of humble myself I sort of google or not google but self-search my own emails all the sort of rejections that we got during that process to just kind of remind myself that I didn't just sort of sprout out of the ground fully formed even in terms of my journalism career and the amount of sort of internships paid and unpaid that I was consistently rejected for I think there's something particularly painful about being rejected for for work that you're doing for free (laughs) when it's an unpaid internship and they're like no thanks we don't want your free labor it's like ow oh that's really painful I think what you were sort of saying about you know in relation failure in relation to you know society and systems I think that's something as well that I've very recently sort of started to think about because of course like the majority of my failures I'm quite proud to have them I'm proud to be in a position where I can look back and be like I've made it from this point to here but at the same time I think so much of it I felt happened because I thought I wasn't enough and I felt that whilst you know I would look at my sort of CV and be like I've got these grades and I went to this university there must be something that I'm missing in terms of this cover letter that I'm missing in terms of how I'm articulating myself in the interview and genuinely sometimes it really is no your name is Yomi Adegake and it you know that's a very outwardly African name you know you, you, your chances before you even sort of get into the interview or the chance your chances before you even get into the um, position to fail are halved or um, you know lessened by four times because you're a black woman and people are aware of that and I think it took a long time for me not to internalize that and feel that it was my lack and my lack of ability that meant that I was being turned down I'm not saying that that means I don't make mistakes I make several I just think that it's taken a lot for me to understand that I've had to work two three four times as hard just like every other woman on this panel to get to a particular point and I think um, that's something that so many of us don't really think about and immediately kind of wear everything on our own heads and it's very interesting that I literally worked at Channel 4 News. I know the exact pub you're talking about. What's really fascinating is that you get young minority women that sort of make it into, you know, the positions that we're in and feel 
less welcome and feel more imposter syndrome, having had to go through six times the amount of hoops, we feel that, you know, we have that imposter syndrome in a way where we feel like, oh, we perhaps shouldn't be somewhere when people that have essentially been given the opportunity to fail upwards so easily have none of that imposter syndrome at all. I mean, so this is something which I really want to put to you because when I was growing up, my mum would say to me quite often that as a woman of colour, you've got to be twice as good for half as much. And one of the things that that left me with was sometimes this paralysing fear of failure because I felt that the consequences would be so dire and almost irreparable. And for you to be in the position in politics that you are, to have been the first black female MP at a time where the racism was a lot more overt and a lot more explicit, and for people to be combing over everything you do looking for a mistake because then it was a reason to exclude you or to say oh look you'd never deserve to be here in the first place is how did you deal with that pressure well it is a lot of pressure and it's not got less pressure as time has gone on um I remember, though, I was selected for the MP here in St. Newton in 1986. And all these journalists came to see me and said, what made you want to be an MP? What they meant was they couldn't imagine a black woman being an MP, but they all asked the same thing. And then one journalist, she was from the Times, she looked at me and she looked at my CV, whatever, and she said, I was working class. She was a white woman. She said, I was working class. I went to Cambridge. And she said, when you're young and you surmount a hurdle like that, for the rest of your life, you see a hurdle and you take it. Mm. And I do believe people need to go for it, but failure is a thing. Now, um, I remember two failures in my political career. One was kind of okay, though. I ran (laughs) to be the leader of the Labour Party. Now... I didn't expect to get to be the leader of the Labour Party. People encouraged me to do it because it was four white guys running in 2010. There was Ed Miliband, David Miliband, Ed Balls and Andy Boner. Okay, four white guys in suits and ties. And people said, you've got to do it. We just can't have four white guys as, you know, running for leader of the Labour Party. So I did it. And for about the first two weeks, I thought I might win because I shot ahead in the polls. But then, then I knew I wasn't going to win. But it was, it was good. It was formative. I went to 53 different rallies around the country. I didn't win. But you know what? Sometimes losing strengthens you and helps you to move forward. But then I had a failure, which was really quite bitter. I ran to be Labour's candidate for Mayor of London. Mm. And that was different. The leadership thing was fine. I felt strengthened by it. The Mayor of London thing was incredible because it was Lyndon Baines Johnson, a former president of the United States, who said, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. (laughs) And... (laughs) Running for Mayor of London, it was a little painful. The people that I'd worked with, campaigned with, had thought were friends, suddenly they weren't there for me. And that was, that was a painful failure. Not because I thought 
I was necessarily the best candidate, but it was people that you thought were friends, people you'd worked with, people you'd gone to the pub with, and so on, who suddenly weren't there for you. And that, that taught me the, the, the Lyndon Baines Johnson, if you want a friend, get a dog. Um, and uh, how did I deal with it? I suppose I didn't win at all, but there were some really good friends who stuck by me in what was a really dark time because trade unions and individual MPs and so on who were supposed to support me didn't. And there were really good friends that stuck by me. And um, I suppose what you learn from failure, real failure, is who your friends are. One of the things that Yomi picked up on and I wanted to put to you because the BBC has been a bit of a white boys club. And in particular, you know, the Today programme took a long time to change and then suddenly there you are. You're Muslim, you're Pakistani, you're a woman. Did you ever feel that sense of imposter syndrome? Because I certainly don't do broadcasting at the level that you do, but I still feel like I'm a Labrador in a trench coat on its hind legs. (laughs) Well... So this is the way I think about it, because of course we all learn from our mistakes and they're important, but there is a zone I create for for myself, which I think I need to do my job. I am naturally a self-critical person. I very rarely think I've done a good interview. I will come out of the newsroom, out of the studio sometimes and walk across the newsroom and think that I have the words, that was a terrible interview she did, tattooed on my head. And of course, the truth is you're not that important, so not everyone in the newsroom is looking at you when you come off air remembering what you did because they're just getting on with their daily lives. But the way I think about it is that um, I do... I have to really guard against losing my nerve. And the reason I have to do that is because, you know, the the nature of what I do... I mean, this morning at 4.15 in the morning, I was uh, pre-recording a a U.S. congressman. Um, You know, then during interviews in the morning, it was, you know, Jeremy Hunt, one minute, chairman of the Care Quality Commission, chair of the Arts Council. You know, you you need to know your stuff very early in the morning and gather it very quickly. And I don't know who's on tomorrow morning's program. If I allow myself to get in a cycle where I'm thinking, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm really, my performance is going to suffer. So I need to find this sort of sweet spot between clocking what I could have done better, because I don't want to go through life thinking, everything's great, I'm clearly doing a fantastic job and I don't need to learn. I mean, that's just clearly not the case. But equally, just not allowing myself to overthink to the point where it's going to have affect what I do the next morning, because that could be terminal. So yeah, so that's, I guess, how I think about it. There's, there's a zone at which I, and I think actually the, the basic sort of mechanics of the job really helped me. I mean, I do, if you told me uh, right now I'm going to be interviewing Diane in the morning, I'll be thinking, oh, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to ask. But when I put some thought into it, 10 minutes later will be fine. And that process actually helps me. It's like you do what you need to do, and that's what propels you forward. To be honest, um, you're talking about how you're plagued by a certain amount of self-doubt. Now, I've done a load of interviews, not just with today, but all of these guys. I have to tell you, most of these top-notch male television interviewers are not plagued by self-doubt. Well, I I agree with you. I feel that women can often be, and and maybe even more so women of colour, because, you know, we have that feeling of, you know, are we really meant to be here sometimes? So I think we can be more self-critical than others, and I think there's something we probably need to learn from just, um, you know, just not allowing yourself to go too far down that which can end up being a rabbit hole. 
Sometimes, though, there's something liberating in being underestimated. And then you can come out of the traps, go, all guns are blazing, and people are like, what the hell? I thought she was the tea girl. You know? Sometimes that's kind of a powerful thing. absolutely right. When I was a very new MP, and most people didn't know anything about me, before I did This Week, for instance, which was a, a weekly show I did for 12 years, I'd go on these shows, and there'd all be these really important men talking to each other in really important ways. And I'd sit very quietly in the corner, and then we'd go on air, and I'd explode, and they'd say, what the... What the... I want to put to Bernadine and, and to Corinne in particular are the measures by which you judge your success or your failure because it's not always that you're the one setting measures for yourself. And the thing that I wanted to in particular ask you, especially after your crowning glory of last night, is that for the longest time in publishing, even after Toni Morrison wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, black women's writing is seen as somehow specialised right? It's sort of along with the anatomy textbooks in some corner of the bookshop. It's seen as though writing by people from marginalized backgrounds must be in itself marginal. And so the thing that I want to ask you is how did you deal with those expectations and how did you navigate both being incredibly specific and precise about where you were speaking from and the demands of a mass audience? So I haven't had a mass audience yet, so um, that hasn't actually been an issue. Um, And I'm very lucky in that my publisher has always, uh, my publisher of the last 20 years, has always supported everything that I've written, and I've always written the books I want to write in a very uncompromising way. Um, That the issue about publishing industry and black women, that's a big, very big issue and um, in some ways it's getting better in that there are lots of non-fiction books being published at the moment but actually not a lot of um, uh, fiction books being published although there are some poetry books published and each year there's a sort of different, different balance of which genre is being favoured and so on. Um, but what I actually want to say, because this is like the day after the booker, um, the thing I want to impart is that in the 1990s, I used to go on personal development courses. And I was already quite strong and confident in myself. But I, wanted, I was very ambitious in terms of my career. And I wanted to see where I could take it. And we know that in this society, especially as people of colour and women and women of colour, we're not expected to succeed. But I, I, I came across motivational books by Americans many of them by, by women, in fact. And those books were all about achieving in whatever area you wanted to achieve and strategies for doing this. And I learned a lot from these books and from these courses and from these tapes. And I became very focused on where I wanted my career to go. So I was writing from a black woman's British perspective. My writing is quite experimental. And... It was defi- I was definitely not kind of seen as one of the sort of star authors or sort of somebody who had mainstream success. Um, but in my mind, I set myself to have that because I realized that I, want- I did want that mass audience. 
um, because what I had to say, I wanted it to reach as many people as possible. So I didn't want to write for a niche audience. But that was my background in theatre, and that was my early sort of um, books were very much for a niche audience. Um, I wanted my voice to be out there in the world on equal terms with some of the big-name male and white writers in this country. So I used to... I learned to set goals. Uh, I still set goals. And the goals would always be unachievable or unrealistic because a goal that's realistic is useless. There's no point in it. So if I were to say to myself, if my goal today is to write another book... That's, that's something that I know I can do or to write another two books or three books. I know I can do that and I'm not stretching myself. What I really wanted to do was have a vision, a vision of where I wanted to be in the literature world. And I, would, I, I learned about the power of affirmations, you know, personal, per, uh, personal um, present and positive. So I would write affirmations and uh, the affirmations would... I would write an affirmation for every time I wrote a book. And I would write the affirmation um, in such a way that the book was an amazing work of genius before I'd even written it. Right, so my goal was for the work to be just incredible before I'd even written it. And I'm telling you all this now because of what's just happened. It's not something I generally share because people don't understand it. They're like, this is ridiculous. You haven't written a book. It's not going to be amazing. But why when, you start, why, when you start something, do you expect defeat? Why, when you start something, do you expect it to be mediocre? Why, when you start something, do you expect it to not finish it or for it not to be very good or for it not to be well-received? And this, I think I've, you know, as I said, these, these kinds of books and, and sort of um, courses came from America, of course, where they have a very different mindset. Um, we, with, I think we're taught to think small in this country. So I would write these affirmations. In the end, I wrote them for everything. I do a lot of public uh, readings of my work. And everything I did, I would write an affirmation for it and expect it to be the very best that it could be. If it wasn't, and of course, often it wasn't, I wasn't defeated by it, but I would just bounce back and, and continue to set these goals and visions. So one of the things I've, I've learned in my life is to bounce back from what you might call failure. I don't really use the word failure. I just think it's all part of the process. To, to bounce back immediately from, from when you don't get what you want. And more recently, I tell my students, bounce back in the act of falling. So as soon as you feel yourself being crushed by whatever it is that you're not getting, just bounce back. Just bounce back. It's a decision you can make. Bounce back. Okay, next time, or maybe I'll try something a bit different or whatever. So my, my book, Lara, was a verse novel about my family history, and it was a, a fiction uh, work. And I wrote an affirmation to win the book prize. Right, so this was 1997. Subsequently, every book I wrote... I wrote affirmations to win the Booker Prize. And I actually forgot about these because I haven't done it for the last two books. But they, they, you know, they talk about a vision being something no one else can see. And you set a vision and you set a goal, but you must release, you must release your attachment to it because that's stressful. You know, if you're constantly obsessed about achieving this, this, this goal or this, or this vision, then your life is going to be, um, you know, you're going to be depressed and you're just going to be defeated. So I set those vis that vision to win the Booker Prize 
And somewhere along the way, I, I, I mean, I was never up for it. I was never shortlisted or longlisted for it. And it did feel like I was never going to be because it felt like a very establishment prize. You know, a black woman was never up for it. If they, you know, four of them were up for it, up for it and out of 300 books over 50 years, right? So it was never something that was really attainable. But it was something that would move my career into the space I wanted it to be, which was mainstream attention. So... Over, and I actually have all those affirmations in the garage and I'm going to dig them out soon because I'd like to share it in a more intimate sort of workshop space with people because I think it's, it was a, it's a really useful way of approaching and dealing with your career when you're not born into entitlement and privilege. So my background was working class, right? An English mother, Nigerian father, um, large family, 1960s and 70s, you know, for street-level racism. So, so, so somewhere along the line, I think I just put it aside and stopped vis- sort of imagining it. But I had already imagined it. I'd already created that vision. So when I was up for the um, Booker Prize, as soon as I made the long list, I was really excited, and I just said to myself, I've got to win. That's all there is. I've got to win. And I remembered... I remembered what I used to do, which was you just set that goal. You just set it. Everybody was saying to me, you're not going to win it, you know. You know, you know don't, 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 bring, don't get your hopes up. And that's really them. They're projecting their limitations of you and limitations of themselves, right? Because they can't see it and they just think it's impossible. Um, so I, and so then I was shortlisted and I was like, I've got to win it, right? It's mine. And, you know, to what, one or two people I'd say, you know, that's mine prize right seriously I would say they're just they're just going to give it to me they just I don't care they're just going to give it to me and that was my attitude but at the same time as having that attitude and knowing that I'd set this in motion like a couple of decades ago I was still like well I'm not going to get it so it's like it's very contradictory it's like well you know um I was, I was trying to fight the negative thoughts, but the negative thoughts would surface. And so when it came to the last two days before it was decided, which was like, it was decided yesterday, the day before, I, I got my little altar going. And I forgot that I used to have these altars, right? So I had these African sculptures for my 20s, because in my mind I was saying to myself... These are sculptures when you were young. Look at the journey you've made. Like over three decades, you've made this journey. One's a, a Kwaba fertility doll, and one is a Kenyan African doll from both when I went to those places as a young woman. And I lit a candle. No, I'd, li- I'd lit a candle as soon as I was long-listed, uh, but I didn't, hadn't created an altar. And every so often I'd light the candle, and that would be the focal point for me. And then I wrote an affirmation. Um, I didn't write the affirmation until about a week ago. And I just kind of... I know some people are probably thinking this is all nonsense. Maybe it is, but it was about training my mind to, to, to expect to get it. And I knew at the same time that the chances of me getting it were not high. There were six other, five other writers. But I also knew that I was used to disappointment, and I'd bounce back, right? But that didn't stop me focusing on it while also kind of knowing that the chances were slight. Um, and then the day off the prize, I, just, I was just hysterical, so I had some vodka. Um, don't, I, I don't advise that, and I never drink during the day, but I just had some vodka, and it kind of calmed me down. And then when I was there, I was trying to be so calm. Well, I was calm because of the vodka, but I was, you know, 
I was just trying, don't you don't think about it, don't think about it. And every time the thought that somebody else might get it came into my mind, it really upset me. And I was just pushing it, pushing it, pushing it out of my mind. And then they announced Margaret Atwood's name, and then my name came. And my shock was absolutely genuine. But at the same time, deep down, I thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've got one last question for Michelle because I know you've got to run off so you can have enough sleep to not be delirious when you have to get up and do the Today programme. And I'm so sorry, but I saved the toughie for last. I'm not really sorry. Um, and then after this question, I've uh, got one for you, Karina, and we'll go straight to uh, Q&A. And so my, my question for you is really about this Naga Manchetti issue. And the reason why I want to ask it to you is because on the one hand you have blazed this trail through the BBC and on the other it seems that there are these constant reminders that if you are a woman of colour you will lit- quite literally be held to different standards so for those who aren't familiar after a handful of complaints where, um, which were made about Naga Manchetti sharing an experience of racism in relation to Donald Trump's comments uh, made to you know, AOC and Ilhan Omar about you know, go home back to where you came from uh, Naga was first uh, reprimanded and then uh, the decision was reversed and Tony Hall uh, wrote a letter. And I think an instructive contrast is that Brendan O'Neill on Politics Live uh, said that he thought that there should be riots if uh, Brexit didn't happen. 600 complaints were made to the BBC and the response from the BBC is that there was no institutional case to answer. So as someone who has a great career for themselves at the BBC, do you look at that and think, those are double standards? Um, I, okay, I'm going to give you my personal perspective on all of that, because I don't speak for the BBC. Um, and the editorial complaints process um, is, you know, I mean, there, it's, I don't quite know how it works, because I'm not responsible for it. And uh, although I think we've learned all learned quite a bit more about it through, um, through what happened to Naga. I really felt, first of all, I want to say I really felt for Naga personally, because however much support she had inside the organization and outside the organization, and there was a lot of it, and rightly so, um, it must have been incredibly difficult to find yourself in the spotlight in that way, especially doing what we do, where you're really interested in other people's stories. And to have your words raked over again and again and again, I mean, that's not going to be, however much solidarity people have, that's not, that's not going to be a, a good experience. And I think then, allied to that, you know, I, I sort of, I, with most things, I try to translate, you know, how am I going to, what, what does this mean for how I see what I do and where I think my organization needs to go? And I think what it's really cast a spotlight on, not exactly what it was first about, but what it is also rightly shone a spotlight on is um, how far we have yet to go on diversity within the organization. So not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because as a news organization, if you don't have people who are going to say, oh, that, I know about that story or can spot different kinds of stories, you're just not, you know, you, you're missing out. You're not going to be able to serve your audiences. But I also think that it's really made me think about the nature of the difference between yours and my work is that you can take a stance. The nature of what I do at the BBC, and I think 
it's important for our society that the BBC has a code of impartiality, whatever the, um, you know, however, there are things it gets wrong, there are things individual journalists get wrong. But I've made a decision to, uh, in return for the large audiences, the being in the privileged position of being able to hold the powerful to account on big platforms, there is a code of impartiality that, that I have to work by. There are things that I um, not only can't say on air, but wouldn't really want to. So, But, but can I say, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a devoted listener of the Today programme. I listened to it from when I was a child at school, virtually. And I used to hear John Humphreys take a stance, take a position every morning. Every morning! And also... I did the This Week programme alongside Andrew Neil every week for 12 years. Every week, Andrew Neil takes the position. So this thing about BBC journalists not taking a position, I don't quite buy it. I understand why you're saying it, but I don't buy it. Well, the difference is their position is seen as neutral. Exactly. Exactly. That's the difference. But I would also say there are also times, I'm, I'm not disputing what you're saying, Diane, but I'm also saying there are times when people are very, um, I mean, I know this because I get this a lot where they say, you know, because you asked a question in a certain way, people who, you know, are, are on the receiving end of that and don't like what they're hearing are often very quick to infer that there's a, that there's a personal position in that. Sometimes it's the way you're asking the question, it's who you're asking the question to, it's because you always have to think about the other side of the arguments, and there usually are two sides to most arguments. Um, so, so I think it can also be... Um, I think it's very easy to make big statements about people taking stances all the time. I don't think it happens that, that way. I think it can happen. Some people don't always get reprimanded in the way that they should for it. It's true. But I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me is that the public outcry did then shape the BBC's institutional response. Initially, the BBC's institutional response was to say, it's not our position to be calling out either lies or racism and I was like it is definitely your position to be calling that out and then subsequently Tony Hall in his letter wrote racism is racism and the BBC is not impartial on the topic although Ash I would say that I think because this whole complaints process happened quite a long time after the actual tweets I mean I think we'll all remember when those when those tweets came out right and I mean they were called out as racist at the time on the BBC. I mean, the, the main correspondent in the States who was covering the story absolutely called them as such. So it is not the case that at the time they were not called racist. It was just the woman of colour who got reprimanded for it. I mean, I, this is the uncomfortable thing. But I also am really aware that we have to let you go. So would you like to have the final word on the matter? Well, not particularly on this matter, necessarily, <laughs> actually. Um, I guess what I'd really like to say, and I'm really sorry that I have to... It's because my alarm goes off at three, so it's... Um, um, so... But I guess what I'd really like to say is that I, um, I think for the three of you who are younger than the, than the three of us, I think I really hope that we... I certainly feel that we are in a much more celebratory and supportive time than we had um, at the same stage. I mean, it's partly because there are so many more tools today where, you know, we, we see your work, we can, you know, amplify it. All of that is, is really important. So, um, so even though in many ways this is, a, this is certainly a more contentious time 
um, than I remember in my, you know, in my journalistic career. I've never uh, worked in a, in a time like, like this. But at the same time, I think there are things that we can really celebrate about, about events like this, about the fact that, you know, we're, we're happy to celebrate each other's work and hopefully propel everyone. Speaking forward. of which, very quickly, do you have a trailblazer who you would like to shout out? Someone whose work you think is terrifically exciting yeah. and you want light and shine and adulation to be heaped upon it? Uh, yes, a young colleague of mine, Mega Mohan, um, who is... Uh, she's not here, is she? Okay, right. <laughs> Um, but I think I, I always feel that our younger sisters teach us so much. And I think that she is one of those who um, is, you know, right at the forefront of not only doing great work herself, but also amplifying um, other, other great work by women of color. And I, I would celebrate her. Yeah, no, I really do rate her work. She's incredible. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for answering the really tough questions as well. So, I think we might be going straight into a Q&A if someone... Oh, I think we've actually got to wait for the house lights to warm up. So, while we do that, I have a question for you. Yes. And I've been really excited all night to ask it, and I was terrified that we wouldn't get the time. One of the things that really struck me about your work is that in an industry which relies on commodifying black female identities, packaging them up into something which is easily consumable and selling it back to the public, you really did have to fight against some expectations of what your music and your look and your sound had to be like. Could you just share with us a bit about that process and how you had the resilience and the strength to do that when people might have been saying, you know, your contract relies on it? I think it was easy for me because I felt myself to be a weirdo and I felt myself to be an outsider and I'd come from indie music into this music that was sort of vaguely soulful. Uh, it was soulful, but it wasn't, um, I wasn't using like slamming beats. And at that time, I think there was a very narrow view of what um, young black women represented and that was certainly street. It was urban. It's when people use the term urban instead of using the term black. So it was... Um, <laughs> I remember being interviewed by white journalists and they would be sort of distrustful of me because they were sat opposite from someone who used similar language. You know, I wrote a song called Shoe Pastry Heart and I remember being critiqued that, uh, you know, I couldn't be truly sort of a black working class person because I knew what shoe pastry was. <laughs> so, so it's that kind of era, but I felt like, I already felt like an outsider because I was from Leeds and I'm, because I was working class and because I played electric guitar and because I wrote my own songs. I thought, let me just do this my own way. You know, I'm not going to be in like heels and like popping my hip and trying to get loads of rappers on my project. It's this different thing, you know. It, I wanted to show vulnerability and I wanted to show... Um, flaws. I wanted to show that I was brainy and liked poetry and all these things which weren't they weren't really seen as black at the time. I think blackness was like a, blackness and hardness were sort of equated I think when I came into the industry and blackness and cockiness and confidence and otherness and I thought, you know, it's really important for me to be myself in this situation and, and that's been um something that I've, I've kept, you know, that 
that um, I think there's a place for a blackness that is vulnerable and, um, you know, a bunch of artists and musicians who like reading books and question themselves and are full of self-doubt and... um, but still desire to make, you know, and, and still think it's important to have their voice because ultimately we're just people trying to relate to other people and I believe there's lots of people that feel themselves to be outsiders and I'm happy to present myself in that way. So, yeah. All right. So, it is time for the Q&A. I will ask my panellists to keep your responses So roughly 30 seconds, we can get through as many questions as we can. I will be taking them in groups of three. So, hands up, who's feeling brave? Okay, we've got one in the front row here. Keep your hand up, blue top. Hello, um, I'm Sunita from Lucky Things, and I coach a lot of people on confidence. So what I'd love to know from the panel, and you, Ash, as well, in one word, what does confidence mean to you? One word, what does confidence mean to you? Number two in the middle there. Hi, um, my name is Shireen. Thank you so much for such an inspiring evening. Um, my question is around this sort of good immigrant syndrome, whereby I feel like I need to prove that I deserve to be a citizen of this country because of the colour of my skin, either through the job I do or other parts of my life. Um, it's a shocking amount of pressure and has led to overachievements and burnout, um, amongst other things. Um, and I was wondering if um, any of you have ever felt this way and how to stop it playing such a huge part of my life. So I think that was, how do you uh, insist on your right to be here despite the colour of your skin and the ways in which you're, meant to, you're made to feel unwelcome? And number three, lovely pastel top. Hi, <laughs> my name is Alicia. I'm 25 years old and I've been working since I was 19. I find it pretty hard as like a black woman to navigate the workplace um, in that sometimes you don't want to come off as a stereotype Um, but at the same time you just want to be yourself and it's hard because it's like being myself I'm like crazy I like to do what I like to do but then I don't want people to approach me like I've had people say yo 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 or you know (laughs) these horrible kind of stereotypical black things and it's like I don't know you like that okay (laughs) we're not friends (laughs) we're colleagues Um, How do you do that? How do you be yourself? I feel like in the workplace, I can't be myself because I have to be almost this palatable version of black, but at the same time, not be not be threatening and not be uh, like I don't know, just like a stereotype. I don't want to be seen as a stereotype in the workplace. I just want to be myself. That makes sense. So I think these two questions are quite related, which is how do you uh, insist on a sense of you deserving to be here? And then also how do you navigate microaggressions and the sort of restraints of stereotypes? So maybe if we go down from right to left and you start with one word, what does confidence mean to you? And then sense of home, sense of place and microaggressions. To me, confidence is a safety net that means whatever happens, whatever mistake you make, you fall to this safety net, you're not destroyed by it. So you make a mistake, but you don't say, well, this is just evidence of how I just don't deserve anything and don't deserve to be here. And you, you have this as a safety net, you think, I made a mistake. Climb right back on again. So to me, confidence is a, 
It's something that's just underneath where you are, catching you every time you fall. I suppose the word I'd use is authenticity. Once, in my mind anyway, you've accepted yourself as much as you can in your entirety, it's really hard for someone else to weaponize it. Um, I remember once one of my friends called me selfish, because I am. <laughs> I'm selfish when it comes to like sharing like chips and stuff like that and I'll never forget I burst into tears because she was right um and now I mean what 10 years yeah 10 15 years later like you know she'll still say the same stuff and it's like no I I know I am and I'm working on it so I mean I might shed the odd tear about it but I'm not gonna sort of be as upset as I would have been a long time ago um in terms of the confidence question which I'm gonna answer very quickly in one word it just means trust I trust the people around me to tell me when I've messed up I trust them to tell me when I've done well. And so it's kind of like you just outsource your confidence. It's really easy. It means you don't have to have any interiority whatsoever. It's great. It means you can just be free to be the shallowest version of yourself. (laughs) And that feels great. But Diane, maybe if you want to take the questions about uh, sort of microaggressions and also how do you maintain a sense of home in the face of quite literally a hostile environment? Confidence, I would say, if you ask me one word, I'd say self-belief. How do you insist on your right to be here or there? To tell the truth, my family's from Jamaica, and Jamaicans have a way of insisting on their right to be here. (laughs) It's it's just a Jamaican thing, you know what I mean? Uh, That's how we are. Um, But on navigating... The workplace, that is very difficult. I've navigated Parliament for over 30 years. I was a television journalist. I was a civil servant. I worked for a voluntary group. And what I would say, and people may not want this answer, but what I would say is, to an extent, you have to save your real self for your friends. I'm afraid, to an extent. Um, And... You have to always try and be professional. You have to remember that everyone's going to like you, but everyone can think that you're a professional. So I would say, try and save the heart of your real self for your friends. So, so I, my word is achievement. You're not going to achieve what you want to achieve without confidence. But confidence is something that you can develop. It's not a case of you have it and you don't have it. You can choose to develop your confidence. I was talking about those courses that I did. You know, through doing, doing what scares you, you are going to develop your confidence. And with confidence, you are going to achieve what you need to achieve. And if you're coming from a community where people aren't achieving, then it is your duty to develop your confidence in order to get to where you need to be. Don't use it as an excuse. Lack of confidence. I can't do it. I'm not, I haven't got the confidence. You will find the confidence through doing it and get the help you need to become more confident. Um, in terms of the workplace, I kind of, I'm with Diane, really, in that you can't just be yourself in any, any situation and environment. You have to be a chameleon, right? Um, I work in academia. I'm a chameleon in academia, um, you also have to be very clever and very strategic, and I'm sure you know this, about how to, how to get what you want in those situations. And just going in and saying, this is how I am, I don't care what anybody thinks, you are going to be isolated, alienated, and you're not going to 
to move through that system that you need to move through. You're not losing yourself, right? You're not losing yourself if you modify, adjust your behavior to the environment you're in, especially in a work environment. Um, and then outside of that, you know who you are. It's like code switching. It's the same thing. Um, so, and, and everybody has to do that to a certain extent. It's not just you as a black woman. You know, people do it on, you know, with class and sexuality and so on and so forth. And you're not compromising, right? And there are ways to be in, in cult, you know, in um, work situations, for example, where you are in a minority and, you know, you feel that there are people have sort of stereotyped images of you where you can also quietly sometimes, um, you know, uh, deal with that. You, you can deal with it, but you can't go in in certain environments, go in shouting and screaming because nobody's going to listen to you. So you're not selling out and you're not not dealing with their stereotype images of you, but you just have to strategize and work out how to do that and prioritize as well. I mean, can I abuse my position as chair and sort of ask Yomi and Corinne to respond to that? Because what I find quite interesting is that as a performing artist who relies on being able to form an emotional connection between you and your listener and you and your audience and you know Yomi for you the authentic voice and that sense of real connection and sometimes brutal honesty that's a huge part of your your written work and your written persona is that when you hear you know Diane and Bernadine talking about the need to sort of preserve the heart of who you are in work does that ring true for the two of you or is something else at play? It really rings true for me I think there's a different way that I'll be on stage or with my peers or with other, you know, other artists than I'll be in a record company meeting where I'm trying to negotiate the budget for a video, you know I am, I am there with a specific role if anything, part of my role is to try and exemplify to these people that I understand their position and that does require um, a putting on of a kind of cloak where I still I feel like a part of me gets to shine through and a part of me doesn't I would see that as being clever and being tactical and saying right what do these people need what do they need for me in this position how can I use this knowledge to get what I want but um, I won't take the cloak off and show my full self including my vulnerability because I think that would be that would be silly to do you know I think part of a professional situation is it's almost like a game um not that you're not being yourself but you are you're positioning yourself in such a way that you can understand what other people need and fulfill that need fit into that shape in order to achieve what you actually want to achieve yeah, I completely agree with what everyone's saying. And I think that essentially when I heard both of those questions, I just thought these aren't our problems. They, they are societal problems that are then made our issue. It's mm. we are the ones that have to bend and contort and assimilate. And I do think that I've always said, you know, even in the book, Slaying Your Lane, when we sort of write about navigating the workplace, we say we can't tell people to, you know, sort of, um, go on Twitter and write a thread calling out their um, boss, though that's exactly what I did with the BBC. <laughs> um, 
So but, this is very much do as I say and not as I do. Exactly, very much so. And again, that's, that's because I acknowledge that I have a privilege of a platform and being freelance, so it's like, you know, I'm not relying on them for that much money. Um, it's very much a thing of... But I do, I, I do agree, because I think that um, generationally especially, that uh, like especially with online and stuff, you can really sort of feel like you're not doing the right thing because you're not shouting loud enough and because you're not um, holding people to account in the way that I suppose your peers, especially people that, you, that inspire you online, would be able to do. Um, and, I, and I wish that it's something that we could do and I think it is something that we can do to differing degrees. I just always say that, you know, somebody that's working a zero-hour contract at, you know, wherever place and um, has a family to feed isn't necessarily in the same position as a, you know, like a journalist, a guardian journalist like me that can then sort of have the platform and position to tell people, like, to tell my editors, hey, I don't like that headline or whatever. I, I, do, know, I do know there's an element of privilege in how you're able to sort of hold people to account. And I feel that um, whilst, yeah, it's a kind of bitter pill to swallow, um, in the book we do sort of speak about picking battles and sort of the fact that not every single battle needs to be I wouldn't even say not be fought because I do feel they all need to be fought. I just don't feel they all necessarily need to be fought in the exact same way. So in terms of, you know, for instance, insisting on your right to sort of be here, my sort of attitude towards it at this point has been I don't insist anymore. I've got, my, I've got that red passport. It's the only passport I've ever had. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I've lived in Croydon for my entire life. Like, I, I can't be bothered to insist anymore. I can't be... I don't have the energy, if I'm being completely honest. But I do understand that that's not a position that everybody I mean, has the privilege to be in to sort of and, feel and like can I just say um, there's a little bit of a, a class thing in this, oh, yeah. my mother came to this country in the 50s as a nurse, daddy worked in a factory, a sheet metal factory they didn't go to work to be themselves, they exactly went to work that. to do a <laughs> and that's job. my parents exactly, to, to, to and do that's still many people and, today as well, and yeah. so it's a Most little people. bit, it's a little bit, it's not the reality yeah. of a lot of black people's lives Absol- even now absolutely. it's not about being yourself, it's about being as professional and yes, trying to enjoy the job and, and so on, but you've got to be professional. And that's why it is the, it's a question, in my mind anyway for HRs and for companies to be addressing, and we get asked this a lot, people are like, you know, what, what should we do and we're like, we still don't know the answers, we're still going to these spaces and having to contort at our level of what we're doing but, but I do think that it's, a, it's an issue and I think that it's something that in an ideal world, whilst I definitely wouldn't want to be my full self at work, I would want to be able to be forthright in the same way that my white male peers can and without being labelled as aggressive but I also have that understanding of the fact that you know, if I do choose to sometimes present myself in that way, I know I'm going to be penalised for it and I'm thankful that I'm in a position which means that I can sort of push those boundaries slightly more than other people but I'm also aware that that's just not the reality as you guys are saying for so many people Okay, number one, right in the middle black top, hand in there keep it up, keep it up, keep it up, otherwise I'm never going to know Hi, um, thank you so much for um, fantastic sort of wisdom you've shared today and just being really honest and forthright. Um, I really uh, value your honesty and sort of saying about boxing clever and picking your battles and not going to work to be yourself. I suppose a question I have is that we live in the age of identity politics and we are trying to, in our own small way, move towards improving the situation for, you know, for ourselves to not be doing more work than some of our white male peers and sort of what small ways, what measures, you know, have you in your experience done to sort of 
be the change you want to see and that, that could maybe sort of encourage some of us as we're sort of sometimes in homogenous environments, how to make that space a more positive environment where we can sort of have that, um, just to, for it to feel sustainable that we, you know, sort of get where we want to go. So how do you be the change you want to see? Question two. Hi, my name is Nadia and I'm a part of the University of Surrey Feminist Society Committee. And my question is, do you feel um, that uh, Chimamanda Adichie's idea about the dangers of a single story has in any way affected your lives? Do you think that your lives have been defined by a single story? And do you think that your current stories are being muted in any way? Okay, so... The danger of a single story has that shaped our lives. Number three, which I think was towards the back there, perhaps. Yep, 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 yep. Hi, um, thanks for uh, this, this talk today. It was brilliant. It's so great to hear from you all. As a woman of colour with um, ADHD who's had, who struggle with mental health issues, um, it's, a, it's about kind of expectations and dealing with all the kind of mis- misconceptions and multiple layers of discrimination. And I'm just wondering how you would deal with it in terms of being in such a highly competitive environment and also that expectation of being a strong back woman and also just kind of self-care as well, what kind of self-care routines you might have. Okay, so thinking about... Um overlapping and intersecting oppressions, thinking about high expectations, the pressure of being a strong black woman. And number four, where was my number four? There we go, already got the mic. Hi, Perry Dillon. Um, My question is two-sided. I suppose the first bit of it is, what would you advise women of colour coming up into your industries for how they could succeed? And maybe more importantly, what advice would you give to your industries to enable women of colour to succeed? Okay, all right, so let's go in the opposite direction. So maybe let's start with you, Bernadine, and work our way down. So feel free to answer all of the questions Can you or just anyone's refresh my memory? particularly. I only slept two hours last you. night and okay. <laughs> I'm a bit tired. We also have Corinne, who's like just straight off a flight from New York, so yeah. we've got a lot of sleepy people on this panel. So just ask me one of them and Okay, I'll... right, now you're testing my memory. Okay, question one How do you be the change that you want to see in the world? Question two was the dangers of a single story. Question three was the sort of uh, pressure of expectations of strength and, um, you know, the way in which uh, intersecting oppressions overlap and interact. And then what is the advice you would give to someone trying to enter your industry? And what is the advice you would give to your industry in accepting people like you? Okay, so this is the easiest one for me to answer. Um, so uh, my industry is, um, is literature, it's publishing, it's writing. And my advice would be, um, first of all, you've got to do the work. You've got to do the writing. Um, you've got to develop the skills and the talent. These days, people kind of develop it and it's, they do it in a very public way, but you don't have to do it in a very public way. Certainly, most of the writers who you are reading are not people who develop their skills online. They're people who spent you know, years develop, usually years developing their skills. And then when their skills were at a level where they felt it was 
you know, their work was ready to be published, then you need to get um, advice and support in terms of how to enter the industry, how to get an agent um, who will then try and find a publisher for you. You need to um, be the best writer that you can be and know, and know the sector that you're writing in, the field that you're writing in, um, know what you're offering to that field. So it's not about just reproducing the stuff that you're reading or the stuff that's already out there. Um, and then if you get knocked back, then you, you, know, you can self-publish. There's nothing wrong with that. Or if you're knocked back so much that you feel that the work is really isn't strong enough, then you write something else. You know, I was um, sharing a panel with Salman Rushdie the other day, and his first book was not the first book that he wrote. He wrote four or five books before his first book was published. And his, you know, he's had an incredible career. So you just have to get, make sure the work is, strong, is as strong as possible and don't be seduced by what you think is the glamour of it. You know, writers are people who do it because it's something d- deep inside us and we, you know, we feel driven to create our art. And that passion and that drive will keep you going when, when there are sort of inevitable setbacks. What was the second half of the question? Oh. Um, and your advice to your industry. Oh, the industry, yeah. They know. They know what they need to do. You know, <laughs> you know it's white. It's like 95% white or 97% white and uh, middle class. And they know fully that they need to bring, on, bring in all kinds of people from all kinds of communities at every level of the industry, from, from the top down, especially editorial, sales, marketing. These are people who make the decisions um, about what books are published. And some publishers are doing that at the moment, which is a good thing. But you always have to be on their case to make sure that they don't backslide. Cool. I've got to keep answers really quick. So 30 seconds on the question of your choice. <laughs> Um, that's the laugh of someone who's like I am an MP and I'm going to be the next Home Secretary I will answer as long as I like Ash (laughs) Um, just in response to the the person that said how do you you be the change you want to be in small ways wherever you work, whatever you do you can support other black people now, that may sound obvious, but I've worked in big organisations and there'd be two big television companies, actually, and there'd be two of you. And you'd be up in the cafeteria and the other black person would literally go to the other, other side of the cafeteria because there is the type of black person who thinks if they sit next to a black person, that makes them more black. <laughs> Don't be that type of person. Be nice, be supportive, even to people you might not think are important, people sectors, lady in the cafeteria, but wait, when there's only one last piece of jerk chicken, you want that cafeteria lady to give it to you, not to someone else. So, (laughs) and also if you have spare time, try and work with young people, I think that's really important. You want me the question of your choice? I'm like, what were the questions again? <laughs> like, um, oh, there was one I really wanted to answer, but I can't remember. It was near the end. Danger of a single story, uh, intersecting oppressions, expectations of being a strong black woman, and the uh, advice someone advice. in your industry. So advice to somebody that was coming up in journalism, um, especially if they're a woman of colour, and especially if they're doing opinion writing, 
do not read the comments. And I'm being very serious. Don't read the comment section. It doesn't matter what you're writing about. My first internship was at, I can't even remember, oh, The Guardian, actually. And I did a week-long internship. And um, I was writing something about, I think, I received some sort of press release about food. The comments had to be turned off because everyone was being racist. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you're writing about. Don't internalise it. Don't think that writing about, you know, non-partisan, like, things as innocuous as baked beans is going to stop that racist commentary because you're going to get it. Didn't matter that I didn't have my byline picture. It literally just said my name. That was enough for me to get the vitriol. So please do not read the comments under any circumstances. Even if, like, amongst all the bigotry, there's one nice one. Just get your friend to take that one, put it in an email and send it to you. It's not worth it. Um, and in terms, to, in terms of the um, industry, listen to <clears throat> black journalists. We need black editors. We need black people in positions of power and commissioners. And we need black people and minorities to be you know, having an okay in terms of the headlines because you can write a perfectly brilliant, nuanced piece and they'll give it a really clickbaity really, you know, race-baity headline. And again, that's going to, you know, bring on all kinds of hate and um, bigotry that I suppose... I think a lot of people see it as, you know, that's just part of being a journalist, that visibility. But they, what they don't understand is um, for black people and black women and minority women in particular, you know, it's, it's the difference between being called a bitch and then having that prefix with black, you become a black bitch, you become, you know, whatever kind of effort that they can throw at you. So please don't read the comments in industry. Please turn off the comments as well <laughs> when it comes to minority people if they ask you and say, look, I, I mean, The Guardian, thankfully, are quite good with that. But most of the time, anyone that's read my column, they'll be like, oh, why is no one commentating? It's because they're not allowed. <laughs> um, no, but she's... Mike, 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 Mike. <laughs> no, she really is right don't read the comments. You know, even in what you might think is a liberal paper like The Guardian or The Independent, the comments will be horrible and put you off writing. I scarcely read comments on Twitter anymore. I still tweet, but I scarcely... Because it'll get in your head and it'll make you start to doubt yourself. I'd agree with that. I would like to uh, address my answer to the woman who identified as having ADHD and say that... uh, that order lord comment about self-care is a radical act is a really important comment you know there is a time to go to the barricades and there is a time to go to that protest or make that statement or spend lots of time on the internet so that you can then you know present in your feed your particular angle but self-care is a radical act and sometimes you just need to have a bath and stay inside and read a book and eat well and all these things that are to do with preserving yourself and preserving your own mental health and ultimately your own life you know I feel like it's important to say that black people and black women have done enough and done enough work there's enough books being written and there's enough films being made to allow people to who are outside of identifying as black women, to realise that we are individual people with individual voices. It's not our job to go into work and break stereotypes. It's our job to just exist as people and to be comfortable with being individuals who don't always achieve and overachieve and sometimes fail and sometimes miss work because they're ill and sometimes have problems and have to go to the doctor. We don't represent black womenhood. We are black women and we are also ourselves. So I think that the act of self-care 
is, um, is really important and to realise that we're not always doing the work that part of your role isn't always to be waving a banner but there is like sovereign there's a great book called The Sovereignty of Quiet which I'd recommend but you know our quietness and our internal lives and internal work is, is sovereign and um, I'd like to just make that statement I think it's important I mean I mean what a note to end on and it's, it's honestly the best advice I think you can give someone um, a friend of mine was really burnt out and I realised that I was given the sort of advice that I would never take myself which is that letting yourself experience joy and calm and quiet isn't opting out you need it and you need it to thrive um, but this is where we must leave you. If you enjoyed this event, please subscribe to the Intelligence Squared podcast to hear more fascinating conversations. Just search for it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. Don't forget to buy tickets to the next Intelligence Squared X Galdem event, which is called Letters to My Younger Self, which is launching later this week. My letter would just be, don't date emotionally repressed men. Um, <laughs> Finally, please join me in giving a big round of applause to our speakers, the Intelligence Squared staff, and the venue staff. Thank you all so much for joining us. We're off. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.